I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. Friendship is the hardest thing in the world to explain. It's not something you learn in school, but if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, you really haven't learned anything. Muhammad Ali. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. When I was 18 years old, I left home for the first time to attend school at the Naval Academy Preparatory School in Newport, Rhode Island. It was an exciting time in my life, but it was also a sad time because I was leaving behind my mom and any comfort I had ever known, all in order to achieve the dream of getting an official appointment to the Naval Academy, graduating, and becoming an officer in our nation's military. As I look back, I think for any parent, it must be hard to thrust your kids in the world, hoping and praying that they find good people to look out for them in your stead. Thankfully, I did, and I found it in my peers, one in particular by the name of Weetrong, today's guest on the podcast. I've spoken about this previously, how in the absence of a father figure in my life, I've created a hodgepodge of friends and mentors who I turn to for support. I'm just now getting comfortable admitting this but, you know, sometimes my friends filled the role of a father figure and it resulted from the idea that I aspired to be like them, that they felt some responsibility towards me and would look out for me and have my best interest at heart. When I first met Trong, I was fascinated by him. He was a five foot Vietnamese American with broken English headed to the Naval Academy like me. He was a seasoned combat veteran with the deployment to Iraq and the Battle of Fallujah under his belt where he was wounded in combat and received a Purple Heart. As an 18 impressionable kid at the Naval Academy Prep School, Preparatory School, Trong was already the stuff of legends, and he just so happened to be my neighbor. And some of my fondest memories were of me and Trong talking about life, war, and the future we envisioned for ourselves. From the time we first met in 2005 until I left active duty in 2015, whether he realized it or not, Trong was a key figure in my life. He was there with me when I contacted my father for the first and only time only to be rejected and my existence denied. He was there when I found out my mom had a stroke and I had to return home to Texas. He was there when I won my first national championship in Reno, Nevada. He was there when I graduated from the Naval Academy and looked out for me while I was attending the infantry officer course in Quantico, Virginia. And he was there with me in Afghanistan as I was dealing with the pressure of leading Marines in combat. So as you can see, he's kind of always been there at these key moments in my life. And although we haven't talked much, or seen each other over the last few years due to life, transitioning out of the military, and everything in between. When he calls, we pick up right where we left off. And one thing that has allowed us to reconnect recently is this podcast. Trong is a big fan of the podcast and often texts me feedback on certain episodes, so I asked him if I could interview him for the show. As a Vietnamese American who immigrated here with his parents when he was a kid, he brings a unique perspective on the American dream and a family lineage that shed blood, sweat, and tears in our nation's military to earn their place as American citizens. Trong's father fought in the Vietnam War, where he served as an officer and a ranger in the South Vietnamese Army. He was eventually captured by the North Vietnamese and served six years as a prisoner of war. Following in his father's footsteps, Trong fought in Iraq and Afghanistan as a Marine Corps infantry officer and continues to serve till this day. Trong has taught me a lot over the years, and I couldn't pass on the opportunity to record his story and share it with you all. 
This is an American story of friendship, war, and what we can continue to learn from each other. And I hope you all enjoy it. And as always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me and enjoy the following episode. And we are live. What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the legendary Confessions of a Native Son, where we speak truth to power. I'm your host, the one and only Iron Mike Stedman, the people's champ. Today, I have another one of my brothers from another mother, Mr. Wee Trong, United States Marine Corps. What's going on, Trong? Hey, brother. How are you? Uh, first and foremost, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you for having me on your platform here. We haven't you know, really talked to each other much, and uh, I really look forward to the opportunity to you know, catch up and uh, share my story with you know, whoever that listened to this podcast. You know, it's funny. You mentioned we might not talk very much, but it's like we, p- we pick up the phone. We, we pick up right where we left off, you know, and it's always interesting in relationships, right? Because you'll have girlfriends and whatnot, uh, like my girlfriend uh, now, Simone. And it's like, oh, you know, Tron is like my closest friend. She's like, I've never met him. I was like, you don't understand. We just all have so much history with each other. You know, guys I deployed with, was in war with, you know, these really impactful pieces in time that we spent together. You know, and it's just interesting because the civilian world, a lot of people don't understand these type of bonds. I'm not saying my girlfriend doesn't understand it, but it's just like, how can we have so many friends and buddies and all be extremely close? You know, absolutely. And uh, that's one thing. Again, not a lot of people are fortunate, kind of grown up having that relationship. I was blessed that, I mean, even to today, I still maintain contact with some of my closest friends from school. One of them I met since literally fifth grade, and the other one, uh, obviously later, but joined the Marine Corps with him. And then there's other guys that, you know, from high school, I still maintain contact with, even though we're very different and we walk different path of life, you know, but that relationship, you know, however, that we maintain really continues to grow over the time. Now we both have families and everything, but every time we got together on, you know, cell phone or FaceTime or whatever, it seemed like literally yesterday because we kind of brought up some of the old memories, you know, the dumb things we did from earlier. And we're like, oh, yeah, I remember that, you know, and continue to go forward. Absolutely. So, Trong, why don't you take a moment and uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay. Um, my name is Wee Trong. I am first generation, you know, Vietnamese American. I got to Minnesota in 95. It was quite frankly a culture shock to move from a tropical place like Vietnam to Minnesota. That was uh, very, very cold. Then growing up, you know, in Minnesota, really didn't think much about my life. Back in high school, I had, uh, you know, that epiphany, hey, what do I want to do next? Do I want to go college or do I want to, you know, join the military and whatnot. And one of my good friends from Lily Elementary School, that's when I met him, he already joined the Marine Corps. And to him, he's looking for people to join so he can get that, you know, marital promotion. So like, hey, we, you want to come with us? And I'm like, yeah, sure. If they take me, I go kind of thing, you know. And funny enough, at the time, I didn't even know about the Marine Corps, you know, existence. I thought we just have the Army, Navy, and the Air Force. So I asked him, like, hey, man, what's the Marine Corps? 
He was like, yeah, we're kind of like the army, except we're a little tighter, do things li- differently. I'm like, yeah, if I get to go with you, I'll go, you know, whatever the case might be. And fast forward, joined the Marine Corps, and then from there, decided I really, really like it and want to make a career out of it. And that's when I want to, you know, cross over to be the commission you know, officer. So I applied and got accepted to the Naval Academy. That's where I met my stepman here while we spent a year together at the prep school. And fast forward, we still maintain contact even today. You know, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And uh, man, it's, I'm so glad I get to get uh, you on the platform. And, uh, you know, let's talk about it. You know, I released this podcast and over the course of, I think I'm up to 33 episodes at this point. Um, you know, it's been a journey, right? You go back some some hurtful and painful memories and you bring it up to light, you know, all very publicly. And I remember when I first released the podcast, you know, Trong reached out to me. He's like, hey, man, are you OK? You doing all right? And I was like, yeah, man, Trong, I'm good. But I think it just goes back to, you know, I think sometimes we all have our lived experiences. And, you know, this platform, just being able to come on here and just kind of speak my truth or at least my interpretation of the truth from my perspective Sometimes it's people's first time hearing that versus mm-hmm. others, you know? So the first time people hear that anger and that frustration and all that kind of stuff come out about, you know, my experience in the Marine Corps or maybe something happened while I was an entrepreneur or whatever. If it's your first time kind of hearing that personal level, you know, people get kind of worried versus others who have been like, oh, well, we already kind of know that. But, you know, I, I called you. I appreciate the phone call. And I just wanted to let you know, man, I'm good. I don't got a vendetta against anybody. I'm just, this is just an opportunity for me to kind of speak my truth and pass my history on to whoever comes after me. Mm-hmm. You know, tell the truth. Uh, when you first start the podcast, you know, and I was listening to it really to support you. And then as, you know, the theme goes on, I'm like, okay, Mike, what is going on here? Why, why you get dark on me all of a sudden, you know, because it's, it's kind of like, you know, nowadays when people talk about the, the inner demon that people, you know, was dealing with and sometimes it's overcome to a point that, you know, there's no return for a lot of the guys. So I originally thought that was it. Hey, this is your inner demon, you know, like hey, you need this to recover. And then from there, you know, we'll see what's going on. And then as it's turned out, I'm like, oh, wow, you, you struggle. You know, as your time in the Marine Corps, I'm like, okay, what, what was going on here? Because kind of looking back as I you know, reflect upon myself a little bit, I'm like, hey, I was there at the same time with you in Afghanistan. You know, we talked. You came to support my operation. We did all this stuff, you know. And I really didn't see that demon that was eating you alive. I didn't see you know, how much struggle that you went through. And then... I question, I'm like, hey, like, are you okay? <laughs> you know? So I reach out to you, you know, kind of like, hey, what's going on, man? Like, uh, it's something that I'm not seeing here because, quite frankly, you know, we talk, but kind of maybe it's the superficial self that, you know, we just don't want to see, let other people see that we're struggling. You know what I mean? So every time we talk, it seems like all the goodness. And then, as things go on, you know, start listening to more. I'm like, oh man, you're like you're really struggling. Like, what is going on here with your your Marine Corps career? And so, I think that probably the reason kind of you know give me the idea to kind of reach out a little bit more. Maybe you know, 
I mean, I have always known that PTSD affect people differently. And I don't know if to label everything as PTSD is the right thing, but you know, it, it absolutely affects people differently when it comes to that uh, psychological aspect of it. And as I reflect a little bit more, I kind of realized that, hey, outside you, you know, there's a lot of my brains kind of happen the same way. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe there's something there until your um, one episode when you release about, you know, that whole PTSD and the human genome and all that stuff. I'm like, ah, may- maybe there's something there because, you know, while other people went through and, you know, didn't really impact them much, but, you know, majority of us are not blessed with, you know, whatever those genes that made up who we are, you know, or how we can overcome uh, adversity and stuff. So that that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah, no, man, I'll tell you, too, you know, when I, the reason I did that episode with Always Faithful is because I don't want to say like I've ascended in some regard, but, you know, people view me as a successful black man these days, you know, Naval Academy graduate, got my master's, entrepreneur, run a nonprofit for the inner city. And when I was growing up and I was going through all these struggles, you know, I would just meet so many um, people of influence Right. And they look like me and they always made it seem like their stories were just rainbows, sunshine and rainbows. You know, that like they never experienced racism, that they never experienced discrimination. And that if we were experiencing it, it was something wrong with us, you know. And so now that I kind of have a platform in a sense of, you know, I'm, I've just been I've just done some amazing stuff that I'm blessed to do with amazing people. And it was just an opportunity for me to say, OK, I don't want that to be my narrative. You know, I struggled. Right. And I want people to know my struggle because I want young black men and women who come after me to know that, hey, it wasn't easy for me either. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why I, I told my story, because otherwise it's just like, oh, Mike's a successful. You know, he's one of ours. You know, put the Marine stamp on him, you know, <laughs> put him up on the pedestal, put him on the media. And it's like, hey, man, you know, I took a lot away. And I if I had to do it all over again, I would still do it. But at the same time, it's important for me to speak my truth. And, you know, it ruffled a little people's feathers some. But I think, um, you know, this is just the power of podcasting. And I'll tell you something, too. You brought something to light to me that I never thought about was, you know, how your friends can get offended because they're like, you should have come to me, you know? And I guess it's that same feeling of like, you know, we've lost people to suicide, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's always that sense of why didn't they come to me? You know, when you had all this going on, I would have been there. But I think it is this sense of like, I don't know, man, I think maybe for veterans, too, especially us coming like the Naval Academy and Marines. And, you know, we had Brandon Barrett, you know, Brandon Barrett was our uh, platoon commander, you know, when we first came to Naps. And so it's just this sense of toughness. So like, man, if I can't figure it out myself, you know, I can't be leaning on all these other people. But as you get older in life, right, and you realize you can't do everything else you know, I'm a lot more comfortable of leaning on other people for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, I just felt up against it, you know? Yep, no doubt. It's it's funny that you kind of brought up some of that, um, the things you just mentioned, right? So growing up, you know, when I first joined the Marine Corps, I wasn't sure, you know, what I was doing, quite frankly. And at the time, my training, because there was a war going on. So my training was limited when I would say, you know, production was the mission, you know, get you in, get you through, get you, you know, to combat, right? 
So as a new guy, I did three months boot camp. Then I went through school infantry, did another two, two and a half months or so training. I remember specifically, I checked into my first unit, which was Echo Company, you know, second time, first Marine, the day of, I guess, before Thanksgiving, that Wednesday, right? And obviously, everybody already secured, you know, so there only a handful of them receiving us, but they wasn't sure what to do with us. So they're like, hey, you guys want to go home? You'll come back, whatever. So I'm like, well, sure, I'll go home, right? So I went home for Thanksgiving, came back. Then, then at this time in December, so I really spent about a couple weeks or so training with a unit. Then we went off on Christmas holidays and slash our pre-deployment leave. Came back from that roughly about January time frame. We trained for another month, maybe six weeks or so. Then we deployed on February, I would say, 28th in 2004. So looking at a time frame, I joined, I entered boot camp in June of 2003. By February of 2004, I deployed. So eight months in my Marine Corps career, I found myself in, you know, Fallujah, Iraq, right? So that's why it, it was crazy to see and kind of grow, you know, experience some of those things that not a whole lot of people could understand, but maybe because I was blessed that, you know, it doesn't really affect me. But at the same time, a couple of my good friends, I mean, they struggle, they struggle hard. Even today, the guy that joined the Marine Corps with me on the buddy program, he struggled hard with PTSD. He went on and using you know, the drugs and alcohol as the, the coping mechanism. But maybe pride, maybe something, he would not reach out for help until you know, I start reaching out to him. We have conversations, you know, and he was able to turn around, get a college degree, but even now had a decent job, but every night he's still, you know, using uh, drug and alcohol to like cope with the, the time, you know, whatever that he could not cope with otherwise. And another good friend of mine, he ended up committed suicide just because, you know, he couldn't cope with it. Even though after he used drug and alcohol, he got missing for a period of time. Then, you know, we reach out to him, but maybe shame uh, i'm not sure what it was but he would he refused to let us help him and essentially you know the local sheriff department found him dead so that's why like it's it's weird how you know we say that we're there for each other and quite frankly we are you know and we're doing a very good job at it it's just sometimes those individuals who were struggling with you know whatever in the demon that they struggle with they you know found another way and kind of kept that door shut and they don't want us to help them and that that's kind of some of the things that i've seen for the guys who kind of kept those door closed essentially you know they're the one who kind of go you know kill themselves or you know, done something that they could not come back from yeah you know as a civilian right i see a lot of veterans struggling right there there so many people struggle with the transition out and, you know, it's it's worth another episode on it because I think I understand kind of why. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it is that, like, you know, people feel like they have this sense of purpose when they're in the military. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason. You're like, even if I don't feel like humping the day, you know, grabbing this pack or showing up to work, there's this sense of, like, it's bigger than me. You know, mm -hmm. there's other people affected. And then all of a sudden you transition out and people lose that. 
Yep. You know, and for a lot of them, like the military would be the hardest thing they've ever done in their life. And they keep telling themselves that. And so I've kind of just grown in my understanding of like, we find happiness out of purpose, you know, out of hard things, you know, mm -hmm. those things that are just beyond our distance. We think we can reach it, but you know, you get lost on the way up, mm -hmm. you know, you get lost and just kind of going after it because when you arrive, whatever it is, you win a national championship or you get that big job. Yeah. It's a high for about five minutes. And then afterwards you're just like, you know, now what? And you know what? It's got to do something. Got to do something else hard. And so, you know, that's a worth a whole other conversation. But I definitely want to do a deep dive on that because, you know, it's just something I see a lot now, man. A lot of people opening up about just kind of they're struggling. You know, uh, they hit me up. They're like, oh, I want to talk about being an entrepreneur, man. How you do what you do? And I'm just like, man, I don't know. I got uh, you got to you got to got to follow a process, man. You got to do hard stuff and you got to be willing to take risk. And a lot yep. of people aren't willing to take risk. Yep. No doubt. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, Looking at back, honestly, the time when I was company commander, right, um, a lot of my Marines are transitioning out. And I was, some of them I was curious. I'm like, hey, like, you have such a successful career right now. What what are you doing? You know, like, why are you getting out? And the, the trends are very common. And quite frankly, the Marine Corps is doing a little bit better at it. But the common trend was maybe you know, something that they exposed to, maybe poor leadership, maybe something else, right? That kind of made them fed up with the Marine Corps, therefore they want to get out. Unfortunately, not a lot of them have plans. So what we would do is obligated that we have to do this, you know, CEO EAS interview, you know, you have to talk to them before they get out. And so they would come and see me and we would sit down and talk and I kind of like, hey, you know, I usually ask them three questions, you know, where do you see yourself five or 10 years from now, right? How do you get there? And then the last one is financial, right, aspect of it. And as we talk, I quickly realized that a lot of them doesn't have a plan. They're like, hey, yeah, I want to go to college, you know, using my GI Bill, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's great, right? So um, I asked them some more questions, like, have you looking at college before? You know, have you taken the... ACT or SAT, have you, you know, look at anything, you know, kind of subsidy, whether the yellow ribbon program or other stuff. And a lot of them have no idea what I was talking about. Right. So I was like, so, okay. So you have no plan for college. All right. Let, let's talk about, you know, how other things you want to do. Right. So other guys will say, Oh yeah, you know, I want to get a degree in that. Oh, I want to go do law enforcement, blah blah, right? And I was like, okay, cool. Like, have you look at your know, the if they hire or not? You know, like, what's what's the job market look like? You know, and as you ask them all those questions, and again, you you kind of see a lot of the the stares. You know, just like, I, you know, like, I don't know. I should look at for you to kind of sign my piece of paper. What, what's up with all this question? You know what I mean? And so I kind of like, okay, guys, like you guys need to, you know, dig deep a little bit. If it, this piece of paper that's required my signature for you to get out, sure, I'll sign it. But understand the grass is not greener on the other side. You know, if you're encounter, let's say, bad leadership, right? Again, it exists. It exists everywhere. You know, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, I mean, you name it. You know, it exists. So what, right? Are you going to judge the organization based on your own experience? Or, hey, let's say the Marine Corps, for example, if you first enlistment, 
you encounter poor leadership, just do a B billing. Maybe you're going to see, you know, from a different view. And if you're that one unlucky soul where you kind of see back to back poor leadership, then, okay, maybe at that point you can judge the Marine Corps. Hey, I, I give them eight years, you know, nothing changed. Therefore, I'm done, right? But if you're judging on your first four years, which again, it's not always nice and pretty. I look at my own experience, you know, I was fortunate to have guys like Doug Zembach to be my company commander, you know, and then everyone else in the command from SWAT leader all the way up, they were very, very good. Even though my training, like I mentioned earlier, was poor, but those guys, you know, make sure I did things that needed for me to survive Fallujah, right? Therefore, I had, I would say I had a very good chain command by seeing that I had no issues, you know, cross back over and be an officer, see if I can, you know, maybe give back that opportunity that was given to me. And so far, you know, actually I, I did a decent job at it, but, you know, by seeing that, that kind of was a blessing. But again, even for me, you know, the Marine Corps wasn't always good either, right? When I was a company XO after our deployment to Afghanistan, you know, I had a boss and quite frankly, we butthead with each other. And he was the reason I questioned myself whether or not I want to stay in the Marine Corps. Like back in 2014, I was like, you know, I'm done. I'm getting out. Like, screw this, you know. So I too experienced that. But then after you know, I revealed, this is, you know, 2014, what job did I have? Talk to my wife, you know, like, hey, what you want to do? And well, I, okay, maybe you're looking somewhere in Southern San Diego, you know, Southern California area. And the job market, quite frankly, for me at the time was pretty decent, but the pay wasn't good. You know, not, not as much as we would get paid when I was still, you know, in the Marine Corps. And after review, you know, all the, I guess the plans. And then finally, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should encounter bad leadership. Let's just give it, you know, whatever four more years or whatever. And that's the reason why I accept that career designation. And fortunately, you know, I got orders to, you know, where I want to go to. And so by moving to the school infantry, you know, as a company commander, I mean, it was great. And then after that, your life got better. But again, like you can't really judge, you know, whatever that experience and you, you need to be able to aware that not everything is nice and pretty. Like you mentioned, you know, like, a lot of people struggle, whatever battle, your know, path that they chose that, uh, to walk on, but they understand that, hey, they're always going to be obstacles. So how do I overcome those obstacle, obstacles? I think that's what's going to be, you know, making money for them. Absolutely. I'll tell you, the one thing, one, I've learned a lot of things from the Marine Corps, but one thing that's been my competitive advantage in the civilian world is like, if you're in the Marine Corps and you get a bad boss, you're stuck with them for a minute. You know, it ain't like two weeks. It's not like a month. It's like you might be with this person like a year, a year and a half, two years. Yep. So you just got to eat it. in the civilian world. You know, they lick their fingers. They say you got to eat it. That's what my kids say. Ironbound. But that grit, you know, when you got this like rock that's just up against it every day and there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You just got to keep going at it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of given me, again, that competitive advantage as an entrepreneur of just persistence, grinding. Because the civilian world, you know, people can quit all the time. Nobody's going to stop you. They just kind of get two weeks notice. 
you know, and another thing is oh, we got some uh, audio stuff. All right, we're good. Okay. Yeah, another thing that, you know, at least I can speak of my experience too, like so even though I had uh, uh, what I consider a bad boss, right? I really never put myself in his position, you right? Know? Until later, when I became a company commander, then I kind of realized that there was reason why our relationship was so bad, right? And I kind of start looking at from his perspective why he act the way he act, and. Quickly, I realized, quite frankly, I screw him. <laughs> so, as you know, a company XO, you know, executive officer, he realized, you know, heavily on me, and I did him injustice by kept him in the dark. You know, didn't really communicate with him because to me, I was like, yeah, look at this dude, you know, whatever. Like he more focused on his career than us, so screw him. But what I didn't realize until later on was the Marine Corps didn't set him up for success, right? As a weapon company commander, he would be uh, a fire support coordinator for the battalion, but they didn't send him to the fire support you know, uh, coordination center course while they sent me previously. So that's why he realized heavily on me, like, hey, you're school trained, you can help me, you know, whatever, whatever. And because of the friction, I didn't really help him. And by it didn't help him, he had to learn and figure everything on his own, right? So in a way, I kind of screwed him a little bit. Uh, later on, that, that's when I realized that. So I reached out to him and quite frankly, you know, apologized. Like, hey, I know we had a, a bad go around, but you know, now I kind of see from your perspective. So for that, I apologize, yo. And he was like, yeah, no. We're good, man. We're good. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. You know what, man? You got people got growth mindsets. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. People make fun of people. They're like, oh, you change. You're not the same person. You're supposed to grow. Your understanding of things, the world around you is supposed to get, it's supposed to change over time as you get more experience. And so I applaud you for that. You now, know, what what's, I do, what's funny uh, that you mentioned that because that I think becoming one of my favorite quotes was the quote you use from Muhammad Ali. You know, if you're the same man, you know, 20 years from now or 10 years from now, then you should waste your life, you know, yeah. because you should yeah. change. A man who views the world at 20 the same way he does at 50 has uh, wasted 30 years of his life. Exactly. You know? um, but what I want to do, you know, we're jumping in, we're catching up. But, uh, you know, I want to really set the tone for why I got Trong on the show today. Um, and it probably is probably good because it kind of ties into my confession, you know. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Trong, but when I went to the Naval Academy, uh, when I went to the Naval Academy prep school, you got to understand, I was a black kid from East Texas, you know, getting shipped off to Newport, Rhode Island, you know, to go to school. And I remember when I told friends in my high school, you know, that I was going there, they're like, what are you going to do up there? You know, just in my environment, we didn't know black people going to Rhode Island. You know, it just seemed so far away from Texas. It's the East Coast. And so I find myself in this environment. And I've told you, you know, I don't, I've never met my father to this day, uh -huh. 33. Um, and I go out in this environment and again, it's just this sense of like, and I never even thought about you being like the only Vietnamese person in the entire program, you know, but for me, it just felt like when I was there, I was so exposed as a black person, you know, just cause it's like, there's not a lot of other people that look like you, you know, the, whether it's out in town, the barbershop, whatever. And the reason I bring that up is because you know, me and you just kind of had this bond. Like I found myself 
looking up to you from the very beginning, right? Like not even like a brother, almost like brother slash father figure-ish, you know, just because you you kind of took ownership, you know? You could see that I was kind of goofy and I'm showing up and you're like, oh, come here, Stedman, man, I got you. And then I think about that process over our years. You know, Trong has been there from the prep school when I was going through IOC, right? One thing I didn't tell in my story when I was going through the infantry officer course was I actually slept in Trong's room, you know? And you didn't even ask questions. It, you didn't, you know what I'm saying? It was just one of those things of like, I was always in there. You were showing me stuff, you know? And then I would just kind of sleep in there. And, uh, but you were never, it was like, again, like brother, father figure, just like, you know, hey man, I got you, whatever you need. I go to Afghanistan, you know, they're like, hey man, this Asian Lieutenant's looking for you. You know, he's about five foot. I was like, strong, man, that's strong. But it's, it's funny how like I go through all these different phases in my life, especially early on, you know, the liftoff and you were there. And the thing is, you were also going through your own demons and stuff, you know. But again, it's just this sense of like, I've always appreciated you for that. So even though we might not talk in years or whatever, like that will always be there. That sense of like, man, strong always had my back, man. It was never, never asked a question. You know, and I think, again, for me, it's just and the reason I brought up the black male thing is a lot of black males, they feel like nobody has ownership of them. You know, that real ownership of like when they're up against it, you know, who is going to be there to be like, man, I'm going to help save you. You know, and I think a lot of times it's this sense of like, I can't speak for everybody, you know, but sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where it's like it's like us against the world. You know, and I think it translates in the inner city, too. It's like a doggy dog world. You know, guys out there like ain't nobody going to save me. Nobody's going to feed my family. I got to do what I got to do, you know. Um, and I just I want to say I appreciate you for that. And that's my confession is that I've always looked up to you as a like a leader from day one. Well, I actually I appreciate that, Mike. Um, we we were blessed like the, the class, the, the group of prime list Marine from our class, they, they were just a good group of people. Um, and, you know, my roommate, Eli Morales, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. And I don't know if I should, you know, tell this story on, on this platform because, you know, it's going to upset other people. But like when I first met Eli, you know, I, I didn't know what, you know, he was. I kind of got a, a, some piece of information about him through his boss that, you know, he and I are going to go through the same class. But instead of, you know, remember Morales, I remember Gonzalez. So when we had the prep school, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny because I was looking for Gonzalez. And I was like, you know, we got Morales, we got Cifantes. I'm like, I don't see a Gonzalez. Like, what is going on here, right? So I thought his boss lied to me about him being there, right? And then finally, when, you know, we sat down and I talked to Eli, and I was like, oh, Morales. I was, I'm thinking to myself, like, how the heck did I get Gonzalez, right? And uh, he, he stopped, you know, I guess, digging a little bit deeper. You know how Eli is. He started, like, digging, like, so what's this? What's that? How do you get, you know, Gonzalez? And at the time, you know, it's just almost like white lie and kind of trying to make things, you know, a little funny in a way. I'm like, come on, man, Morales, Gonzalez, Sufantes, all you guys look alike to me. Like, I can't tell the difference. Like, you know, you're yeah. correct. My, you know, excuse my French, but like, you're a beaner. You know, like, you just go on and just whatever, right? And from there, it kind of stuck on me that, you know, how I 
you know, kind of through my own, <laughs> I don't know if I call it prejudice, but, you know, through all that experience and I finally realized I'm like, yeah, I screwed up. I don't, I don't know how I got, you know, Morales from Gonzalez, but, you know, whatever, you know, you guys are freaking Mexican, you know, whatever. And he's like, I'm not Mexican. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm like, oh, okay. So whatever, right? So that, that was kind of like the crazy thing. And later on, I found out, you know, there's another field between Mexican and Puerto Rican. So when I label him Mexican, he did not like that. Yeah. No, it's it's funny. And for our listeners, you know, this is an environment where we're coming from all over the country, literally all over the world. My roommate was from Kenya. Now, he was American, but his parents lived in Kenya as a missionary. Oh, I remember. So imagine, like... How many of us in our platoon? Like, there's probably like 300 of us at this school, and they broke us up into platoons of what, 50 each? And you've got people that have never, it's like a social experiment, like the military in general. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, you know, the thing is about naps, just to set conditions for our listeners, right? This is an environment where you've got kids coming from all over the country, all over the world. My roommate was literally from Kenya. He was born in America, but his parents were missionaries in Kenya. So, we're dealing with like, I mean, people think Twitter is bad now, right? Like, imagine, like, everybody living with each other. You know, you got the you got the Confederate flags from the South. You got the Vietnamese guy with a shaved head, slanty-eyed. You got the black guy with the fitted hat and the uh, throwback jerseys. And we're just all just trying to figure out, like, basically just kind of, like, how do we survive with each other? But yep. it's just interesting. But, you know, you think about that, but we're all, like, so close now. But back then, it was just, like, your first interaction. So... It was really like people's first head-on collision with race away from the safety net of their home environments. Like, Mm -hmm. it's one thing, you know, to kind of interact over racial issues and gender issues, Mm -hmm. and then you just kind of go back home. But now it's like, yo, I really just offended this person, Mm -hmm. and I have to live with him. Yep. You know, (laughs) know? it's it's funny that you, you mentioned that. So growing up in Minnesota, I remember when I first got there, I didn't really speak English, right? And around my my neighbor, you know, they're African-American folks. And I would like literally got my ass beat by those guys. I'm like, God damn, what's going on here? Do these people angry? What's going on here? Right. Then fast forward, you know, got through school, joined a Marine Corps, then got to naps. Like we kind of got tossed in that environment, but we didn't really feel, you know, the separation. Maybe we've came from different backgrounds, you know, different walks of life, but we're kind of, we're there. And we're doing whatever necessary for us to, you know, make mission, which is, you know, to graduate, maintain good grades so we can, you know, get liberty, whatever case may be, right? But like you said, we, we kind of got tossed into this and we don't really see each other as, you know, whatever that is, background that we came from. We tell, hey, you're a candidate, you know. Three you're 3-2, you're 3-2, you're exactly. You're, you're, yep. you're the zoo. So we kind of create our own identity and then from there, which is, you know, get on with it, right? So that, that, that's kind of crazy, you know? Yeah, it's that sense of shared suffering, but it's also this idea of, like, we all had this common goal because at the prep school, y'all, you don't, you're not guaranteed admits to the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Like, we all got sent to the prep school because for whatever reason, there was questions about whether or not we would be able to go to the Naval Academy and graduate within four years. And so they sent us to the prep school to just to kind of get us up to speed, et cetera. And so you had to graduate with a 2.0. Trong and his peers that were prior enlisted, you know, if they were coming from the fleet. So they had this, they had like three or four gap years between school and now they're going to this rigorous academic environment. So they sent them to NAPS. And then uh, for someone like myself, 
right? They sent me there because I just didn't have the grades to go uh, right away. So, but there was this sense of like, we were just all moving together. You know, we were like high performers versus before we knew what high performers were, you know, because we were just reaching towards this goal and, and that's the power of it. So what I want to do is I want to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsors. And then I want to go ahead and do a deep dive in today's episode because I'm super excited. But first, I got to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Be sure to head over to www.realdope.coffee and place your order today. That is a black-owned, veteran-owned, woman-owned business. Mr. Mike Lloyd, my co-producer and a fellow Marine officer. Also, I want you to check out Sincerely Body, a woman-led company that's Harlem-based and specialized in handcrafted body care that relieves, restores, and relaxes. Their products help you feel better naturally. If you're suffering from aches and pains and don't want over-the-counter drugs or prescription medication, be sure to check them out. They have balms, bath salts, and oils to relax the body and soothe the soul. Head over to www.sincerelybade.com. That's Bade spelled B-A-D-E co- collection. It's actually, it was originally Bade collection, but we've uh, pivoted to Sincerely Bade. And it's actually my girlfriend's company. So check out sincerelybade.com. Remember B-A-D-E, B-A-D-E. All right, Trong, let's get into the theme of today's episode, Confessions of a Vietnamese American. Now, to set precedence on it, it's like, for us as veterans, right, we tend not to be the chest bumping, I want to make fun of Navy SEALs, but, you know, I'm so amazing, I'm so badass. But let me tell y'all, Trong is a badass, right? He's got a lot of, he's done a lot of amazing stuff from Fallujah to Afghanistan. I mean, he was in combat before we all knew what combat was. Um, we were all just kind of role playing. We were LARPing. You know, we were out playing paintball. You know, imagine getting shot at. Tron was really getting shot at in Fallujah. But he has got a, a great story. But one of the things that prompted this interview was, you know, even after, you know, Tron reached out to me to check on me about the first podcast, found everything was good. He kept listening to the show. And then I ran an episode. It was called Hacking Racism and Mental Health Within the Black Community. And we talked about how PTSD was passed down in the human genome. And Trong sent me a text and said, uh, the guest I had on, uh, Yusef Enriquez, and Trong sent me a text and said, yo, he's right. My dad was in Vietnam, and I think that's one of the reasons why I don't have issues with uh, violence and PTSD, et cetera, you know, that it's passed down in the genome. And uh, that just sparked a great conversation. And I, I figured uh, we would get Trong on here to talk about it. At first, I was like, Trong, we should get your dad on. I would love to hear his story. But, you know, because of the English, uh, the language barrier, Trong just felt like he'd probably be better if he comes on. So uh, let's just jump right in, Trong, and start off by, you know, shedding some light on your family's history before moving to America and what you remember uh, about your dad's story. Okay, so my dad, he was a South Vietnamese rancher. And how that worked was, you know, our U.S. Army ranger trained, you know, South Vietnamese ranger back in those days, right? So his, a little bit about my dad background, he is a academy grade, uh, grad at the time in Vietnam, there's only one academy and they'll produce, you know, army, air force, you know, Navy officers. So everybody graduate from that, right? So what that means is that their training was better, right? So my dad was an academy grad. And then from there, he 
chose you know to be a, a ranger then he gets sent you know, to some of those uh, mission and stationed in certain places and the day was back in 75 when south vietnam surrendered my dad was at the outpost and he never really knew uh, that you know they surrendered already and his supply ran low so he kind of radioed back for logistic but you know didn't get any answer or whatever case might be so one day he literally called all his men in be like hey guys this is my post i'm gonna stay uh chance i'm probably gonna die here but you know if you guys want to desert right now now is the time to go i try to get resupply but nothing right some of his guy left uh with that opportunity uh some stay for those stay some were killed some were captured along with my dad so my dad was captured in 75 and got sent to six years in the pow camp during the time you know, he was in the pow camp i mean he got exposed to all sort of stuff and you know he realized that this wasn't really you know, a a regime that he want to take part of partly because even though they call it a re-educational camp, but realistically, they tried to get rid of anybody who opposed them. And by doing so, they start, quite frankly, killing the officers. And it was just a matter of, I guess, it's just a number thing, right? So it's just a matter of time before my dad number was up. And just before my dad's number was up, I guess some news, whatever your know, reporter found your know, capture a clips of them executing military officer in the camp and they make a big deal about it after being released obviously the war got involved like hey like what's up with re-education but you really killing people over there like what's going on and because of that they stopped killing officers so my dad kind of lucked out but he did witness his classmate got executed in front of him right so he locked out, but they still kept him for six years. When they release him, at this point, I mean, it's like I don't need to keep you anymore. I mean, there's nothing you could do, kind of thing. So they release him immediately after release. He looking for ways to escape the country. I mean, you heard about all oh, those fishing boat, whatever the case may be, right? So he did that. He trying to escape the country via the fishing boat with. Uh, I get luck wasn't on his side. The boat that went through, he wasn't on that boat. The one he got on was either got turned around due to weather or got captured again, right? So he did that for, I think, a couple of years and finally just gave up. It's like, hey, you know, whatever. So during this couple of years, he actually met my, my mom and then from there got married and started a family. So by the time my sister was born, it was in 82. Uh, that was kind of like he gave up hope of you know uh, escaping via those fishing boats, and then I was born in '84, and then up until you know 1990, that's when we received a letter from you know the U.S. government. Hey, you know we review your record. You serve with us. You can come over. You know whatever, right? So we did, and it took us five years from '90s to '95. Like we didn't leave Vietnam to '95. So it took us five years to kind of, you know, get to where we need to go. And for my dad to, you know, struggle through 
being a POW to now be able to leave the country. I mean, that was something that uh, it was, you know, literally a hairline short of a miracle for him. What was it like to be stuck in the country after, you know, South Vietnamese army was taken over, got overrun? So honestly, I, the time I was born and kind of going through school, I, I didn't know any better. I didn't even know about the Vietnam War the way it happened until I got to the U.S. My father, even though he participated and he fought for the South, were not allowed to tell me those stories, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they control a whole lot of that. And what I remember, what I've learned, there were your know, history from thousands of years ago up until 1954 when Dien Bien Phu happened, you know, that they still kind of mirror some, some sort of the truth. And then from 54, when the country split into the North and the South to 75, it was almost like a fluff through, you know, like, oh, you know, the U.S. replaced the French and then we beat the U.S. Now we're, you know, whatever, united in 75, right? So I, I didn't really know about that whole aspect of it. And for the the heroic character that they talk about during that time frame were nothing more than, you know, North Vietnamese soldiers or whatever, like, you know, Ho Chi Minh, for example, right? So they um, make him, you know, almost like turn to a national hero. Again, like that's something that I, I didn't know. So that, that was my history lesson. Till I got to the US in 95, I remember, you know, my parents took me protesting a, a, a puppet show, you know, outside Ma America. And I was confused. I was like, hey, isn't this a good thing? Like, this is all people introduce our culture to, you know, American. Like, wh- why are we protesting this, right? That one he told me, I'm like, no, this is not our people. This is the Northern, you know, or the Southern. I'm like, okay, I'm, you lost me there. Like, what are you talking about? Until he started, you know, telling me or showing me what Vietnam, you know, war the way supposed to, you know, happen. And I was like, holy crap, you know. So during that time, like I said, I did not know about Vietnam War until I escaped the country. Yeah, it's interesting how people try to erase history, you know, or we we view history through one lens. But, you know, your dad was like, that's not our culture. They tried to kind of wipe it out and erase it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, talking about your dad's experiences, having met him, he's like a badass again, you know, mm-hmm. badass ranger POW. You would never know. But like the kindest, nicest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just like Asian culture, right? You guys just don't really walk around very much like bravado, chest pumping, you know, it's just very like, and I think that's what, to be honest, I think that's what got a lot of Americans in trouble in Vietnam. You know, this idea of that, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Misinterpreting kindness for weakness. You know, respect. It's like, oh, this non-threatening Vietnamese man or woman or whatever. And then we get ourselves in a situation in the tree line and you're like, yo, these guys are are warriors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just this bravado talking it, but like they live and breathe it. So another thing with my dad was, and, and I don't know how, but he was able to cope with a lot of that, right? He was able to just drop everything and, you know, move forward with his life. And again, like based on all the story he told me, I'm like, how are you normal? Like based on the things that did to you, you know, even they, when he was in the camp, they had a water buffalo and the water buffalo was conditioned based on the 
workforce they use the water buffalo for to the point every time you know the bell would ring the water buffalo would go away so people don't you know like make him work right so think about a, a animal that got conditioned because of you know the whatever hardship that got put onto the buffalo and i can only imagine what happened to the human being right and yet he was able to hey met my mom had a family raising kids you know immigrate to us where we had nothing and yet we still start a, a life of a soul over here we live up welfare for you know a first six months to a year whatever the case may be and somehow you know we bought a first house in 98 and pay off in like 2003 and i'm saying like how do you guys doing it? How are you doing this? You know what I mean? So that's something that I was very blessed to kind of be growing up under that influence. So how did he start over? How did your family start over? What was that process like? You know, for me, it, it at least through my lens and later on, that's when I kind of, you know, understand a little bit more, but growing up, you know, I was young, so I'm like, okay, you know, America, Vietnam, you know, what's different? You know, the culture a little different, you know, you know, technology got a little bit different, but to me, it, it's not much of a difference, right? But to my parents, I mean, it's kind of like, at least my dad, you know, after the war, he had nothing. So instead of sitting here, feel sorry for himself, he's still relatively healthy-ish, right? So, hey, I got my, my legs, I got my arms, I can work. So he would do various jobs, you know, anything from almost like a handyman kind of job to kind of get through the day. And then from there, you know, he'll pick up another skill by you know, going through that so he can, you know, very uh, good with his hands, you know, like from carpentry to whatever, and that's kind of the lifestyle that we had in Vietnam, kind of find a way to live through. Then when we got to the U.S., yes, we were on welfare for a little bit. But during that time, he took the time to you know, go and you know, refine his skill and got an associate degree in machinist. And then from there, you know, able to get a job you know, at Honeywell. That's where he's at right now, right? So he understand, hey... In order for me to start over from here, you know, I need uh, some sort of skill. From there, I need a job, and then from there, you know, that hard work mindset gonna pay out. So essentially, that's that's what he did. And then you know, like not to kind of blow all that hard earned money wherever. I mean, growing up, I don't even remember having vacations. You know what I mean? So from the time I was in fifth grade to the time I graduated from high school, like I don't remember we're taking vacation. Every time we go somewhere, it was like for a purpose. Hey, let's visit you know, my friends in Houston. Let's visit you know, whatever, whatever. You know, those would consider our vacation. It's not like, hey, let's go stay you know, a week in the Bahamas or whatever, you know, because we, we just couldn't afford it. And so by you know, put some sacrifice on the front end, we were able to pay off our house you know, by whatever put money aside you know we were able to you know buy new things or whatever so those what i do remember is kind of like hey kind of one play smart with your money but two work smart you know understand the culture understand whatever and then from there adapt to the environment uh there were a lot of you know prejudice and racism as we growing up where we were in minnesota but you know 
we were able, at least they, my parents were able to shield me from a lot of it. But at the same time, sometimes yeah, from the education perspective, they also tell me, hey, here's what real life is. You might not understand now, but at least you know they exposed me to that environment. Essentially, you know that kind of got me think a little bit as I kind of go through school and kind of make a thing for myself. So you all don't know this. When I first met Trong, his English was not the way it is now. You know, right? Like my English wasn't the way it is now, to be honest. But I'm curious to know for you, what was it like growing up in the public education system? You know, not being able to speak English well and being Vietnamese and being short. You know, like all these things, because when I was in the South, you were the first Vietnamese person I think I'd ever really met. Like I eat Vietnamese food because of you. You know, you should take me to these restaurants, right? It was good. It's good. But I think back to like you being a young kid. I mean, how old were you when you moved to America? I actually just turned 11, uh, literally a week after I turned 11. That's when I moved to Minnesota. So what was that process like getting acclimated um, in the education system? So it's kind of funny, right? So in... In Vietnam, you know, the, the technology was quite frankly not there. So I would learn everything by memorization or by hands, right? So looking at the timetable, for example, I literally learned and memorized the timetable when I was probably like finished up first grade or maybe second grade. So I, I can do you know numbers like by hands easily. When I moved to Minnesota because I didn't speak English, I repeat fifth grade. And even when I showed up in fifth grade, the math for me was so easy and I can do it, right? The, my barrier was the, the language. I just couldn't speak English. And so that's why, you know, they thought I was some gifted, you know, child or something because I was so advanced in math. But realistically, I've learned all that stuff, you know, years ago. You know what I mean? So I'm just like, no, this is really easy for me because I've been learning it, right? But that, that kind of some of the things that... Uh, I had to go through like one repeat fifth grade kind of give me an opportunity to learn you know English and by sixth grade where I you know speak a little better and I, I was able to catch on with you know other people another things that kind of helped was they call ESL English as second language so in fifth grade I have to take ESL uh, per my curriculum but then by sixth grade, when I'm, you know, caught on, then I don't need to take ESL anymore. How was your relationship with peers um, growing up? Did you have friends outside of Vietnamese kid friend Vietnamese uh, kids or? Oh, absolutely! Like the the school I went to, the elementary school. I mean, it was kind of like one of those schools in the suburb. It's kind of funny because they put all Vietnamese kids into like maybe two school, right? One was mine, which total, the other one is Fulton or whatever. Like there are only two schools where you find Vietnamese kids. And then those two schools that also have like two middle school, you know, that you can find Vietnamese kids, right? So they kind of purposely put it in those schools, maybe because of the ESL structure, but within those schools, I mean, it's just like a school, you know, you got black folks, you got white folks, you got, you know, whatever, right? So I remember fifth grade, for example, uh, one of the kids that kind of helped me through, um, he also Vietnamese, but he'd been in the country probably a year, maybe two years ahead of me. So he speak better English, but I help him with math. So between the two of us, we kind of put together you know, a brain like, all right, I'll help you with math. You will help me with English. And we kind of advance ourselves together. Outside of that, there's some other, uh, quite frankly, white kids that 
I'm not sure. Maybe because we were young, that that whole racial aspect doesn't really apply when you were young. But we're hanging out with each other. You're like they help me or whatever the case may be. You know, sometimes they make fun of me because I didn't know. You know, like, I, I didn't drink milk uh, in February, so they like make fun of me and so on and so forth. But like by you know growing, putting that environment and kind of grow together, essentially, like you know, which is there with friend. I mean, it, it it's weird, but like in that age, we don't really think about the, the racial issue as much as we are as we get older. Yeah, it's 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 taught to us, you know? It's like, it's taught to us. All the imaging and all this other stuff, all the negative stuff that people tell us we can and can't do because of our skin color, and then it's just, it's later. So let me ask you this. Um, so your dad, you know, South Vietnamese, ranger, prisoner of war, finally has an opportunity to leave Vietnam, build a family, build a new life for his family and you get ready to graduate high school. And instead of going to college, you tell him you're trying to go to the military. Talk to us about that because, you know, I think a lot of people think of the American dream as coming here, going to school, going to college, you kind of get that good job and you're signing up at a time when we're, our country is at war nonetheless. So I guess my path is quite frankly a little unique. My, um, I did very well in, in high school. I mean, I was like 3.9, 4.0 kind of kid, right? And I didn't really know what I want to do and kind of see from my par- my dad specifically, he has a huge influence in my decision, kind of see how he is as a man, how he is as a father, and oh, by the way, how he just acquired things, just learned things through his hand is very, very handy, right? I was like, I want to be like him. I want to do something. Is that, you know, the military to teach you this stuff? And he would tell me you know, a lot of his story, you know, like from the military time. And quite frankly, yes, they did. They, they taught him, you know, how to survive. They taught him a lot of stuff, right? And part of that is really how to survive wherever environment you're in. And that's kind of like one takeaway. So my decision of joining the, the Marine Corps, he, he understood the decision and he wasn't against it, but he wasn't like flat out supported either because my mom, my mom was against it a hundred percent, right? And that's the reason why I lied to her when I was in Fallujah. I'm like, hey, mom, I'm not in Fallujah. I'm in you know, Okinawa or whatever. Eventually, she found out. But you know, she was not supportive because she kind of realized that no, that was a hard lie. You know, seeing from my father. She knew my dad from way when they were younger, right? So that's why I like from seeing that and now like seeing me, she was not happy. But then again, you know, move forward. When I get accepted to the Naval Academy, they're like, okay, you know, now now this is something more than just, you know, being an enlisted personnel or just being, you know, like, um, I, I'm not sure what's the word I'm looking for, but it, it's not as bad, if that makes sense, right? So after that, you know, that's why they were there at our graduation, you know, from now, I mean, now they're very, very supportive, especially my mom now, like somehow between my dad and I, we convey to her that, hey, it's not that bad. The danger is inherent based on a job, but at the same time, you know, like it, it's not that bad, so you shouldn't be worried too much, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, she became supportive, quite frankly, after my deployment to Fallujah. Let's talk about that. 
All right. So you graduate high school, you end up, end up going to Marines and then you had a quick turnaround, right? Like mm-hmm. you went to boot camp, then you were in Iraq within eight months. Mm-hmm. Right. Now tell them, tell our listeners about the story of uh, how your mom found out you were in Fallujah. <laughs> oh man, put me on spot here. So when I checked into the unit, I went on uh, leave for Thanksgiving, came back. I think just before the pre-deployment leave, we, we knew we were going to be in Iraq, right? In Fallujah, Iraq specific. But at the time, you know, we, we didn't really know what Fallujah was all about, but we knew Iraq was bad, you know, based on all the news and stuff. So went home for you know the holiday christmas and pre-deployment leave i kind of prepped the stage a little bit i was like hey mom uh i'm an infantry guy so you know the chance of me being in iraq is pretty high but you know don't worry too much this time you know, i'm gonna be in okinawa japan you know whatever case may be really because i i knew she was not support of my decision to be in the military and now tell her that i'm about to go to iraq it's just not gonna work right and so i kind of give that white lie a little bit I'm like, hey, not not to worry. Then I deployed to Fallujah the day I got hurt. I think it was like late March, early April timeframe. Tell our, tell our listeners how you got hurt because they're not familiar with the story. Okay. So we were in the middle of a firefight. I was on the rooftop and I had a, a 203 grenade launcher and my platoon saw and, you know, you know, like how in movie you would see like people shooting at you so you got a chance to shoot back. Well, I didn't see anything that day. We get lit up, we get shot at, but I didn't see anyone. So I didn't really fire my rifle. And my platoon saw and he was like, hey dude, what are you doing? Obviously using you know nicer word than he used with me, but he's like, what are you doing right now? And I was like, well, I don't see anything. He was like, well, I don't care, shoot, do something. I'm like, okay, what you want me to do? He's like, you got a 203, right? And this is a grenade launcher. And I was like, yeah, I do. Like, shoot him. And I'm like, where? He's like, Windows, right? And you know me at the time, I think I was maybe 105, 107 pounds, right? So this weight is a lot on me. And someone tell me to, to dump this load, <laughs> right on. So I did like one by one, look at window and start shooting stuff through the windows. And quite frankly, it was effective. Like the, the you know, small arms fire we received it actually dying down. I'm like, okay, cool. And then from there, I ran out. So I stopped again. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, shoot, do something. I'm like, well, I ran out. He's like, what do you mean you run out? And I'm like, yeah, I ran out. I'm like, look. So I took a knee and kind of going through all my gear and looked for it, right? And I'm like, I don't know what he wanted me to look. I ran out. And he looked at me. And I remember vividly, you know, like, bitch, shoot, do something before I kill you. I'm like... All right, this is childish, right? So I like look again, and then I'm like, I I felt something to hit my my lap a little bit right there, right? And at first I thought it was him that kicked me. I look up at him like, steps on, why you kick me? And he look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you better shoot do something before I kill you, right? I'm like, man, this is childish. Like, what is going on here? And he he's not a short guy, just like me too, right? And so as I took a knee and then when I looked down I'm like oh crap the motor literally land right there between my legs I'm like ah stop you know so I like stab some motor and he was like where and I got your point like right there and we're like oh running you know try to jump off like a second story window or a, a, a rooftop 
And we're like, yeah, we're not going to survive that. And so we're like kind of cut around the corner with the little wall kind of stuck out a little bit. And we just waited for the boom. You know, we're like, hey, you know, where's the boom? And it didn't go off. And then my team leader was like, hey, why don't you come over there and, you know, check it out? I'm like, you go check it out. They're like, bitch, I tell you to do something. You go do it. I'm like, no, this is, you know, crap, right? So I got up. And then that's when I felt something like ran down my leg. I'm like, oh. And I looked down at this point, like blood already seeped through my trouser. <laughs> and I was in like, first reaction, I'm like, oh, crap, I got shot. <laughs> I'm like, uh, Stefson, I think I got shot. And he was like, what do you mean you, you think you get shot? You get shot? And I'm like, I don't know. I just point at my, you know, my trouser, which all is soaking blood. And he was like, oh, shit. Yeah, and so he took the uh, pocket knife and cut it to the, like expose the wound like we were trained, and he just stared at it, and I'm like, uh, "Am I gonna live?" Because <laughs> like, I just watch you know Blackhawk now when the dude gets shot with a femoral artery right down there. Yep. So I'm like, "Oh man, what is going on here?" And he was like, "I don't know, dude." And he just stared at it. He's like, "It looked like a cut to me." And then we're like, "Corman." Corbin, but Corbin was actually on the other house, uh, patching up one of my other friends. And so he took a wire to it. I'm just saying like, I don't know if I'm going to live, you know, whatever. Right. And, uh, fast forward, you know, we got the order to withdraw, but at the same time, you know, we got, you know, the CNN crew that were with us. And so they kind of like zoomed the firefight, they zoomed back in, you know, and since they zoomed back in, they saw my face, like holding up you know, my unit sign and stuff. That, the video clip that my mom saw on CNN. And so she found out through CNN that I was in Iraq. Then, but she wasn't sure because you're know, like, I could be anybody. You know, maybe someone looked like me, right? Until I think about a week later when she would get a phone call from, I guess, headquarters Marine Corps. Like, hey, yeah, your son got involved in combat and uh, he was wounded, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, how is he in Iraq? He told me in Japan, like, what is going on here? Blah. So he, she thought it was some like conspiracy or something that you know they got me from Japan and put me in Iraq or whatever. What she didn't know, I lied to her. Until later on, she found a way to contact you know, my chain command and essentially found out or confirmed I was in Iraq. And my chain command told me to call home. That's when she like just lost her mind, like. Tell me right now. Tell me the truth. Like, where are you? And I was like, Iraq? Where in Iraq? Fallujah? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was not pretty trying to explain that to your mom. But that story literally lived with me for the rest of my Marine Corps career. <laughs> what did your, your, but your dad knew you were in Iraq, right? No, 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 no one he knew. Didn't yep. So, how was his response? He understood. I guess he understood, you know, as an infantry guy, you know, whatever the war going on, you know, like he, he had a gut feeling, but until it was confirmed, you know, but even when it confirmed, like he knew, you know, that the duty, you know, sometimes like you don't get to say no to your know, where the military send you kind of thing. So, so he knew he tried to be supportive, but you know, like trying to be supportive of me while I deal with my mom at home. So that kind of like he had to walk the balance and he did a very good job. So when I got home from that deployment, I mean, it's like go home, visit the family and they act like, you know, 
it was a miracle I survived. Well, it actually was a miracle I survived. But yeah, they're like, oh yeah, blah blah. And we had like a party, a bunch of people came over, and I like, so how was Iraq? You know, how was the gear you carry? And we were just like, for the older folk that reminiscing the war, you know, story. But compare that to mine, you know, I was like, yeah, dude, like this is Iraq, this is not Vietnam, you know, like I, I don't encounter what you encounter. There's no comparison there, man. Yeah, I know. A lot of Marines like to talk about these Afghan and Vietnam, I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq. And I'm not saying, you know, listen, war is bad, but I would not want to be in a tree line out in the bush in Vietnam. You know, I can tell you that right now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so here you are, a combat veteran, Purple Heart, and your unit, you guys weren't, unfortunately, I weren't able to bring everyone home, correct? That's correct. Um I don't remember on top of my head right now, but I think out of a company about 110, 120 folks, we have 78 wounded. Out of those 78 wounded, I believe four or maybe five KIA. And um, the rest were like bad, like wounded bad. Uh, There was only about, I think, I would say eight of us that were wounded, but we were able to recover that, you know, like nothing, you know, like basically a hundred percent recovered. Everybody else, I, you know, like get shot at, you know, got blown up, missing arm, missing leg, whatever the case might be. Did you get back in the fight after you were, you were wounded or did that send you home? Oh no. I mean, it, it, it was a cut, you know, that, that's like, uh, so if the mortar was literally an inch to the left, I would lose my leg from the impact, even if it didn't detonate, right? If it's detonate, I would come home in a coffin because I would be in pieces. Um, But I was lucky because I I was lucky because it missed the the round itself, missed my leg by an inch. So the fin on the motor gave me a cut. It's just like a knife cut. That was it. And because it was a knife cut, it wasn't bad enough for them to send me home when we have a lot of you know casualty and we already have combat replacement already and um so i stay with a unit they did give me like about 24 hours on or just make sure like i'm good i didn't get any you know major cut or anything crazy but you know i just limp around for you know a couple of days and back in the fight no no issues and I, I don't know at the time i don't think i want to go home with that that minor cut either because we were very, very tight as a company. Yeah. So how do you go from combat to receiving an appointment to the United States Naval Academy? So my entire chain command, they were all Naval Academy grad from platoon commander, company commander, even battalion commander. Uh, I remember during the initial counseling, my platoon commander asked me, hey, like, where do you see yourself, you know, five, ten years from now? I was like, well, I'm... I think I'm probably still going to be in the Marine Corps. And he's like, enlisted officer? And I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, being an officer, you know. And from there, he, you know, kept in contact, you know, kind of showed me the way. That's why I said I I was lucky that I have a phenomenal chain command. And uh, so as he showed me the way, he himself, uh, you know, so my own platoon commander, he was a me-sepper. So he was enlisted to become an officer. One of his close friends, which is our sister platoon was the Naval Academy grad, right? So he kind of showed me the the difference between you know MESEP and the Naval Academy. And at the time, you know, to myself, I thought, hey, 
I go to the Naval Academy, I don't pay for school and I get paid to go to school. I mean, that that's like double winning. Like, hell, if they take me, I'll go, right? I didn't really know the academy to be the academy. And fast forward, you know, as I looking at the application and my entire chain command, like I said, like we're all, you know, academy guys. So they're like, really, you know, give me a good recommendation based on my performance. And so that that's kind of how I got, you know, to the Naval Academy. But like you mentioned earlier, we have to go to the prep school. Uh, our class were probably the first class that we have combat veterans in probably the Vietnam War. And because of that, they weren't sure how, you know, we would react toward the midshipmen, toward the school environment, and so on and so far. That probably reason why they sent it to prep school as one, to decompress, but two, to get our mindset right, and three, to make sure we're academically ready. You know, like a lot of us, you know, not blessed like other folks who were extremely smart. A lot of us would just work hard, and that's the reason why we end up at the prep school. Yeah, basically, Trong is saying the Naval came was worried that the Marines would try to kill us <laughs> if we pissed them off, you know, playing our music loud and talking back and this and that. Um, but, you know, they they came and, you know, I really appreciate that group of Marines, man. Y'all were great, honestly, and y'all were super tight. But I want to talk to you just about, you know, so here you are, you know, especially from, in, I mean, you're from food stamps at one point, right? To, you know, your parents, you know, building up a life and everything. And did they understand what it meant to get appointment to the academy? You know, I know when we were younger, it was like a big deal to a lot of us. Yes. So it's because my dad was an academy uh, do himself. Um, so he understood, you know, like the the rigorous process, right? And he knew it's a, it's a you know, prestigious you know, opportunity to get there, right? Uh, so for him, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad knew about West Point when he was in Vietnam, like during his time at the, the academy, the South Vietnamese Academy. He didn't really know about the Naval Academy until later on. And quite frankly, once he started you know, doing his own research, really the only differences is, you know, unlike Vietnam, where they'll have one academy for all services, here each service have its own academy. And after that, he was like, oh, wow, it is the academy, you know what I mean? And so that's why he was like, well, since you're there, I mean, like, I, he, they didn't go to my boot camp graduation, probably because my mom, she was not supportive of the decision, but because, you know, they now kind of see the, the pretentious of being, you know, like at the academy, they're like, yep, I will do whatever I could to be there for your graduation. That, that's what I did. And they, they were, they were there literally the whole like graduation week. We did like a bunch of fun stuff together before graduation. I got to witness your growth. You know, when I showed up to Naval Camp, I was so excited. I was like, I'm ready to go, you know, but I think you all, uh, you know, a lot of the, the the prior enlisted, right? It was like a culture shock, you know, because it's almost like you're kind of starting over, you're mm-hmm. above it. So I know there was a little, a little friction there. Talk to us about your experience going through the academy, um, you know, especially coming from combat, going right into that environment to the kind of transformation you had by the time you left. Because like, our class loves you. You know, you're like pretty popular, man. Everybody knows strong. You know? <laughs> Where, um, so, I mean, me particularly, I was told by my leadership, hey, you know, like they kind of tell me some aspect, but not tell me the rest kind of thing, right? 
because quite frankly, just like IOC, right? There, there's certain things, you know, uncertainty is the theme, right? Certain things you have to learn yourself. So those are some of the things that um, they didn't tell, right? But at the same time, like, like hey, you, you, you got to play along. Like, this is not designed for folks like yourself. It's designed for high schooler who's wasn't sure about the military, you know, the academy, kind of like the military exposure. And then from there, that kind of, you know, make you a military officer. So I kind of knew that a little bit. But what I didn't know, so I knew like, you know, when we at the prep school, I knew that uh, the bleep summer or whatever, the, the thing, the induct portion of it. So I knew about that. Hey, there's only X amount of time after that. You just go to school, whatever, right? So that's what I did. Like, and it happened just like that. You play along for X amount of days. And then after that, school start, focus on school. So it's exactly how it happens. I'm like, okay, cool. At least they didn't lie to me, right? And then from that time, when we show up to your whatever shadow option at the academy, then I'm like, all right, so it's just a repeat, right? We're going to play the game, you know, whatever, during the summer, and then it's going to be just school-like. What I didn't know was bleep year was the entire year, not just whatever the weeks during the summer. I'm like, whoa, time out here. Like, you saying this is the whole year, right? So after I found out this whole thing was the whole year, and at that point, uh, I lost some of my good friends on the second deployment to uh, Iraq. I was like, nah, I'm not staying. No way. Right. So I, I request to get dropped. But at the time, I think it was Captain Pittman or whatever, I'll come the officer, the, the, the Marine Corps guy. You remember that, dude? I do not. Uh, there was a, a Marine Corps captain that in charge. I don't remember his name right now. I think McGee, somehow, right? Captain McGee. Yeah. Uh, um, he was like, nope, you're not dropping. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, and at that time, we also got the boost marine lift like right on top of us. So I'm like, hey, I was, can I to go join them? You know, like, I want to normal school. He's like, nope, 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 nope. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So I kind of got stuck. And then from there, you know, in 2007, when uh, Doug Zembeck passed away, I was like, okay, like, I'm on my last line. I'm not staying, right? And let, um, let our listeners know who, who Zembeck was. So Doug Zembeck was my company commander when I was in uh, Fallujah, Iraq. Phenomenal guy, phenomenal leader, phenomenal human being. He's one of the guys that gave me a very good recommendation to be at the Naval Academy. Fast forward, when I was at the Academy, he was actually stationed in the D.C. area. Uh, at that time, I think he was working for the CIA at the time. Um, <clears throat> so... I ran into him a couple times, and I remember it was in March. I ran into him. He was like, "Hey, I'm gonna take off a little bit. You know, I'll be back soon, probably May time frame. Uh, if that's the case, when I get back, when you come over to the house, you know, we're gonna grill out, get some steak, whatever." I'm like, "Oh, sound good, sir." Blah blah blah. Right. So, fast forward in May, I was at home on leave, and then I got a phone call from some of the guys from the old unit. You know, like, "Hey, have you heard about Major Zembeck?" I'm like, what are you talking about? I just saw him like two months ago. And he was like, nah, dude, he died. I'm like, what? And like, yeah, he, he he passed away. I think this past whatever. I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to come home on um, back to Annapolis on Friday. So I, I'll reach out to family because I got all the contact information and so on and so forth. So I got back. I call. I don't remember who picked up. I think it might have been his mom or his wife. So somebody picked up. I was like, hey, is uh, Major Zen back around? And they're like, oh, you haven't heard about Doug? And I was like, 
no, what's going on here, right? Um, so that's when they told me Duck passed away, and I'm like, no freaking way. And uh, I was close to the family, so they let me you know, attend the funeral and so on and so forth. And that, that was a hard time for me uh, just because, you know, like after being the prep school, you know, there are other people pass away and I couldn't leave. And at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm not staying. Um, and that's when, you know, my old first son, Bill Skyo, kind of slapped some sense into me because I told him, like, hey, man, I'm done. Like, send me back. I, I, I don't care where. Just send me back. And so he kind of sat me down and talked me through it. And after his conversation, that's when I decided to stay and finish the academy. But before that, I mean, like there were multiple times I thought of quitting. So you go from thinking of quitting to the president of the United States now, Joe Biden, reading your story to our graduating class. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, so that's why I'm like, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was... Quite sure for me, it was an internal struggle because, you know, kind of sit where I was, you know, I had like all the luxury while my peers are fighting again overseas and I lost, you know, a lot of good friends. It, it just didn't sit well with me, right? And the conversation I had with Bill Skyer, I mean, I'm glad we had that conversation. Uh, Otherwise, I, mean, I, I would laugh. And if I laugh, I don't know, you know where life can attack me you know, to now. But by staying, I was able to take a lot of the, the lesson learned you know, from my experience and incorporate that into my you know, platoon when I was their platoon commander. And that's why like, when you ran to my guys, you know, they, they were uh, rather happy you know, um, because, you know, who leading them, so on and so forth. But I mean, it, it was at the time I didn't see that lesson uh, until I talked to Skyo. And that's when I was like, okay, you know, like, I'll, I'll stay. And that, that quite frankly proved to be a, a better decision than if I was uh, to drop out, you know, after my freshman year. Yeah. And so let me ask you this you know, you went on, graduated, and it's funny because I go through IOC, right? Strong's helping me get used to the infantry. If you, you gotta understand, I grew up, I didn't camp. I barely went fishing, right? Hunting, none of that stuff. And the infantry is just like a punch in the face. And then you go infantry officer course. So it's a whole situation. But Strong <laughs> was helping me out. You know, he was keeping me encouraged. That was when you start taking me to Vietnamese restaurants. You know, it would just be me and you, you know, just catching up. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny how that stuck with me, you know, because my people are like, why are you eating Vietnamese food? And I'm like, well, my buddy Trong used to take me here all the time. So... I, I enjoy it. But, you know, I think about when you were going through IOC, you were like carrying like what, 200 pounds on your back, 150 pounds on your back. You're like, Stedman, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was rough for little guys, you know, because I remember first that day one, my class advisor, he was like, gentlemen, I'm going to put this out there for you. If you're less than 150, five, six, you're not going to make it. I'm like, ah, crap. I'm like pushing 120, you know, soaking wet, and I'm 5'3". Ah, man, this is going to be interesting. So, yeah, those weight load that we carry, I mean, that was not Joe. It's like me carrying more than me every day. Uh, sucks. And, <laughs> yeah, and so then you went to Afghanistan, too. You were there with me at the same time. Mm -hmm. how, was your, how was your Afghanistan experience compared to that of your Iraq one? It was 
significantly better. And I was happy that, you know, I had the Iraqi experience. Um, compared to my peer, I was, I guess I was a little mature. And, you know, a lot of the lesson, here's one example I'll give you. When I was in Iraq, we had a interpreter and he came to us, literally volunteered to work for free because his whole family was murdered by Saddam and his troop. And he was like, I don't care. I'll work for free, right? Uh, obviously, at first we were a little skeptical, like, who the hell does this do? You know, what are, what are you doing? But he turned out to be a very, very good dude. Like, he, he worked, he just did whatever he could just to get back, you know, for them killing his family. And um, after a while, I think it was a first sergeant who essentially like, hey, like this guy deserves some pay. So we like submit some pay, whatever paperwork and got him pay. But he was just a good guy. And I've learned that kind of seeing you know, what's good, what bad. When I was in Afghanistan, I got a, a interpreter and quite frankly, I, I, you know, skeptical. I didn't trust him. So every time we would do, you know, like operation, he would translate for me. What he didn't know was that I have a little, you know, voice recorded on my shoulder before I walk into, you know, what they call key lead engagement or whatever. Before I walk into a meeting, I would turn it on, and I would, you know, say something. He translate, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, right? Then when I came back, I would reach out to my counter, you know, human intelligence folks. I'm like, hey, I got this thing. Can you tell me, you know, like this dude did what he's supposed to, based on the lesson I've learned from Iraq. And start out, he say exactly what you know I need him to say, and then after he got comfortable, and then he starts saying you know some other stuff to the point he really like I say blackmailing the local. He's like, hey, you don't give me what I want, I'm gonna tell the Marines to like screw you kind of thing, right? And I was able to like capture all that on tape. So the CI guys obviously you know put a, a package and essentially track him down in uh, Cam Letternack and they fired him so on and so far and then after that I, I think I went through like three or four different interpreter by doing so I was able to you know like figure them out a little bit and that's one of the things that I've learned from Iraq by working with my Terp there uh, the other thing was because I've seen combat before so I was a lot more calm when you know we engaged firefight and I was able to figure out you know, where you know the <clears throat> fire was coming from i remember one day we literally walked straight into the ambush and you know after you know they shot at us i saw the muzzle flash and i just took a knee and to the point i like swap out my magazine put on my magazine with all the trace around and i pinged that target for my machine gun so i'm like hey set up the gun he look at my tracer, shoot right there, suppress so we can maneuver, you know, by me exposing myself there a little bit, uh, it kind of helped. But if I didn't, inc I get, didn't experience Iraq, I might have reacted differently, you know what I mean? But by having that experience, I was able to stay very calm and maneuver my guys. And even then, like after, you know, they pick on and put suppressive fire, I was able to maneuver around to the point I love this kid, Cooper Wallace. He was actually insane in, in, with three fives, so he lost a lot of good friends, right? 
And for me, he and I got very close and he afraid that if I, you know, kind of step off the path, I might step on ID, he gonna lose me. So he was like yelling at me like, sir, you can't just walk everywhere. I'm like, why not, man? I know what I'd step on. I mean, look at this dirt. I mean, I know if it's disturbed or not, right? He's like, but I haven't swept those area yet, you know? I'm like, dude, relax, man. I'm fine, you know? I'm, I'm a buck nothing, you know? Like, whatever, man. Like, sure. He's like, sir, IEDs, they don't discriminate. They will blow you the fuck off. Sorry. <laughs> Excuse my French there. But uh, but I was like, yeah, man, it's, it's good. It's good. But he was very, very overprotective just due to his experience in singing, you know? But... Like I said, like those experience um, is something I I've learned from my time in Iraq, where you know, I was a, a lot uh, more calm than I would have, and I was able to employ my guys accordingly and take, I guess, necessary risks uh, as you know needed. Did y'all y'all brought everybody back from your unit? Yep. So my platoon, we didn't even get uh, a single casualty. Like everybody was good. Uh, as a company, we had one casualty. He stepped on, uh, I think, uh, uh, some sort of ID, whether it's like anti, you know, vehicle or maybe anti personnel. I'm not sure, but uh, he lost both of his legs uh, going through, you know, clearing one village. But uh, he was the only like casualty from our company. As a battalion, we got a, a few, you know, KIA on that deployment. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, that's that's always a blessing being able to bring everybody back. And I'm assuming you only did one deployment to Afghanistan? Yep. Yep. That was my only uh, deployment. After that, I mean, they start closing down everything. So I didn't get a chance to go back. When you look back at your your war experience, right? I think um, I'm just curious to hear like, I don't know, you know, just kind of what does it feel like being a combat veteran, you know, especially twice, two time over. Because we're, we're in this millennial generation now, right? They're not seeing the combat. I, I think I'm a millennial. I'm not sure, y'all. I think I, I probably fall, classify as millennial. But just in this sense of like, I could feel it. You know, when I was in the Marine Corps, this sense of those of us that have been in Afghanistan versus, you know, we're going on these Okinawa deployments and you got a whole new group of Marines that haven't deployed. You know, what is that tension like, you know, having that experience? Honestly, there wasn't any tension, tell the truth. You, you remember us from the academy, right? Right. You, a lot of you guys were like, hey, what's combat look like, blah, blah, blah. And what was the answer I gave you? I'm like, quite frankly, man, it doesn't make me any better than any of you. You know, yeah. I look at it as a timing, right? I enlisted in time of war. I pick infantry, you know, they train me, you know, I hurry up and whatever to get there, right? So I, I look at this timing. Hey, I entered the military this day and time. Fast forward, I found myself in Fallujah. Does not make me any better than anyone else, any Marines, anything particular, right? It's just timing. And that's something that, as you can see, our classmate, you know, who are prime listed, basically say the same thing. That's the reason why we have such a good group of dudes because we don't look at it like we're better than anybody because quite frankly, we're not. You know, it's just timing. You know, what not to say if you walk my path, let's say you enlisted in 03, you went to boot camp just like me, go to the same unit. What not to say that you're not walking the same path, right? Does that make you any better than me? 
you know, I, I don't know, but I don't think so, right? So that that kind of how I build it. Uh, does the experience make me better as a person, as a, better as a Marine? Absolutely, because, you know, like there are good, yeah, you know, lesson learned that I can pick up from those experience. But if, you know, other guys that would sit down, especially my peers, if they want to sit down and have a conversation and do compare and contrast, hey, man, uh, what it like to have you know, a star on your combat action? Again, it's timing, right? After IOC, there's a handful of us that get to deploy to Afghanistan, right? You and I happen to be one of those few. You know, other people, they got to another unit. They Even though they wanted to, they just couldn't because the unit that you know they got to didn't get to go, right? So in that aspect, I would just tell all my friends or anybody, really, just like, hey, man, it, it timing, you know, like we put in that position the first time, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted. So my uh, experience in Fallujah would be, you know, brand new. I, I, I didn't ask for it. I just got put in that position. But the second uh, deployment to Afghanistan, I asked for that deployment. I was like, hey, never been there. I want to go there. Right. And in this case, it worked out in my favor that I get to go there. But that doesn't make me any better than any of my guys, you know, my peers right now that hasn't been on a combat deployment. You know, even with the people I work through, uh, work with today, um, none of them were infantry, right? So they give me a hard time for being infantry, you know, in predominantly non-infantry, you know, background. But again, like, doesn't mean anything, you know, we use it as a learning point. I use it as a learning or a teaching point. Uh, I don't look at myself any better than anyone else. I look at myself at, hey, I got put in a very unique situation based on the timing. And then from there, I do the best I can to, you know, share that experience. So that's why when you guys ask me what it like, I had no issue telling you what it like, hoping that maybe my experience would benefit you in some sort, you know, of form or whatever the case might be. If that's the case, that's a win for me. But if you want to wreck and stack, again, like I, I, I don't care. Maybe people look at that as a you know humility kind of thing, but I, I don't know. Maybe I've learned too much from my father, you know, not to um, be a I guess for lack of a better word, be a, an asshole, you know, like there's no need, there's no reason for it, you know, like everyone can learn from each other, everybody can be better. So how do you fit into that, you know, pie? It's on you. You can be in there and be an asshole and, you know, like claim whatever that is, or you could be humble and still receive the same, you know, effect. Yeah, Trong has always been an open book. You know, picture us in 2005, me and my roommate at the time, Wade Kramer, we used to go to Trong's room and just sit because he would go out drinking and he would come back like super mature, had his two jugs of water and he would sit there, drink two gallon, like those two, two gallon jugs of water. Right. And just tell stories and just talk to us. You know, you didn't have to do that. Right. Like you were older combat veteran. But, you know, I think that's why people just gravitated to you. And uh, I'm super excited to, you know, continue to see where the the strong legacy goes, you know, as you continue with your, your military career. Now, one of the things I want to ask you is I learned, you taught me something on race that I had never thought about. Right. And it goes back to, you know, I'm shifting gears here because this is a podcast about race, culture, and business. 
But when we were at the Naval Academy, you were part of a bunch of, you were part of like an Asian American studies club, I believe, right? No. Was it Vietnamese American studies club? What were you a part of at, at, at Navy? Actually, I was never part of any of it. The reason being was, uh, and I think I kind of mentioned with this uh, a little bit to you, was that there, there's a Asian culture club, if I, I was mistaken, and I went and checked it out. And instead of, you know, teaching the folks, they kind of like isolate themselves, um, kind of like, oh, you know, we'll get together because, you know, whatever, X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, yeah, maybe it's not for me. The only thing which you pro- you guys probably seen it too that I was very passionate uh, about or proud to be a part of one was the boxing team and two was the prime listed club. <laughs> that, yeah. But but even with the prime listed club, it was just just us from Naps. Like we didn't really open that up to other guys uh, that you know we met at the academy because it it, it was weird. Because guys like I don't know, you remember you know Salado, for example, you know, yeah. like it, it he used his experience almost to manipulate you know stuff. Or guys like Wick, you know, like they use their experience to manipulate Vice, um, you know, to share uh, like we would. And that's why even with the Prime Mystic Club, who do we hang out? You know, it's myself, you know, Eli, you know, Stephen Sufantes, you know, the. Jeremiah over, you know, that, that same, you know, Ryan Marco, that same core group that we started together at the, the prep school. Yeah, but that's the point you brought up. That's what I learned from you, this, my, this mentality of teaching, you know, because you got to understand too, you know, when we're in these spaces, sometimes we find this sense of safety, being around others where we can just kind of be vulnerable and kind of let our guard down and just, it's just a different experience, right? I feel it living in a city like Newark, New Jersey. You know, to where I come here and I walk down the street and there are other people that look like me. This is the first time in a long time where I haven't been one of one in a room. But reason I like this podcast and reason I like I'm very fortunate to have friends like you is I can still learn and grow. I never thought of it, like you said, this idea of like part of our I don't necessarily want to call it our responsibility, but there are people out there that are curious to learn that don't know. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's a way to kind of teach them and expose them to culture in a way that doesn't necessarily alienate them. You know, and I think about you taking me to Vietnamese restaurants. I would have never walked in a Vietnamese restaurant if we weren't catching lunch there. You know, if you weren't physically taking me there. And because of that, right, it's part of my culture now. So that like, I go to Vietnamese, I take my girlfriend there. I take the kids from Ironbound to these kind of places. And so I do think there's this opportunity and to teach as well as create safe spaces. And that's what I learned from you because I never thought about that. This idea of like, man, we also have missed opportunities. Absolutely. Like, I mean, just as we're growing up, kind of going through the experience, right? So how do we better ourselves? We really will learn, right? So now we got all that knowledge. What are we going to do with it, right? Are we going to keep that knowledge and you know, go to the grave with us? Or, hey, I acquired this knowledge. Let me pass on this knowledge, right? And that's why I appreciate what you do right now, right? You kind of not sure why you picked Newark to begin with, right? But you kind of get there and then you struggle. But what's the theme, right? Why did you open that non-process boxing, you know, like uh, gym of yours, right? And reason is that 
you growing up not knowing your dad, how many of the kids in there might have similar path, right? So what now, right? You said that I, you know, you look at me as a brother, father figure. How do you know those kids might not look at, at you the same way, right? So what that meant is by me sharing my experience that benefits you, now you doing the same way benefit you know, your kids. Oh, guess what? Maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, maybe one of those guys or maybe more going to repeat that cycle, right? That is the good cycle that we want to continue to expand, right? Because <clears throat> it is very selfish of us to acquire the knowledge to benefit us and us only, right? Because that's kind of the, the thing that you mentioned a lot, right? You're going to get there and you're going to find yourself, you by yourself, you know what I mean? And that's something that uh, I've learned, you know, throughout my career from being the enlisted guys, right? Because obviously as officers, sometimes we're in better shape than our enlisted Marines, right? Going to hike is a good example. Do you go so fast? to prove to them that you're in better shape than they are. Because if that's the mindset, that is the wrong mindset. You can argue that, oh, I make them stronger, but there's a way that you can make them stronger without belittling them, right? But what you don't want is when it comes to game day, you're going to get to where you need to be and you're going to find yourself by yourself. Now you're just going to become a casualty, right? Or you did not realize, you know, or train your guys accordingly then now you miss the time window that was given to you, right? So there's a balance. And what we need to do with that is up on us. Therefore, if we understand that and we can train our guys so that way they can be better and then essentially they're going to turn around and repeat the cycle and train their junior Marines and so on and so far, right? And that will eliminate a lot of heartache and discontent that we're dealing with today's you know military or society in general right and that's why i appreciate what you do in new world i mean like my old you know dad like my pop you know you just showed up there i mean you came from your know, car station like why new world right i would assume that you probably back in the south you know somewhere in where it's it's more like a a comfort zone you know the environment that you raise maybe start from there but no you took a different path something where you weren't even familiar with but start the thing to do the things that you know you value yeah no i appreciate that um and i do it with y'all man y'all are in my spirit there's no way that's where i get my strength from man all of you guys around me and my my family and you know it passes on to us the interactions we have so what i want to do trong i want you to kind of address our audience um because you know there's a lot of tribalism taking place in america right now it's very polarizing you know, we're living in the, the George Floyd era. We've seen troops storm, not troops, I call them troops. We've seen the Capitol stormed, right? Races all over the news. But I just want you to just kind of have some closer remarks with our listeners on how important it is to, I don't know, get to know people that don't think like you and be around people that challenge you and push you, you know? And I think you're a prime example. I mean, look at our relationship. Right. Like we walk down, we used to buy me and Charlie on the boxing team. People were like, what, what sports team is this? Is this the tennis team? Is he, does he carry like, what is going on here? And uh, yeah, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk to our audience. Closing remarks. Okay. So for those actually don't know, right. The, the George Floyd incident, uh, the, the location of the incident was little like two and a half, maybe three blocks 
uh, away from my parents' house. And that's the house I grew up in, right? So during the whole period, um, I mean, people literally like came outside my parents' house and so on and so forth, right? So that that's where I grew up, Minneapolis, Minnesota. But grew, growing up, you know, and learning, acquired the things that, you know, the training and then, you know, the, the education that I acquired over the years, I guess my biggest takeaway is you got to give people a chance. Like, first, you know, you need to be able to open up and tolerate, you know, um, understand they're going to be the difference, understand they're going to be your know, those natural barriers, maybe language barrier, maybe whatever the barrier, understand. But deep down, you know, give them a chance. And then from there, they're going to show you what they're capable of. And here's what I meant by that, right? Um, looking at, you know, our relationship, you know what I mean? Growing up, I got my, you know, behind, handed to me by black folks living in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know what I mean? We got into fights all the time. The so what behind is, is that, hey, do they know what I'm going through? Chance are they don't. Why? Because they weren't exposed to the culture I was, you know, raising, right? And vice versa, do I know what they're going through? Chance are I don't, right? Um, I don't know what it felt like to, you know, not having a dad, right? I don't know what it's like to, you know, like not having a place to call your know, home. Like, I, I, I don't know, right? So by don't walk the same path, don't know what their background is, but what I do know is, hey, we might show something in common. You know, you and I, for example, we had the prep school, we got the boxing team, right? And from there, we kind of give each other a chance to you know, get to know each other. And that's why we became you know, friends that we are now. And that's something that I would challenge you know, anyone out there, you know, like, I, you don't know the background, right? So don't assume because, you know, when you don't know, it's better to just ask, you know, don't assume because a lot of people look at me and what's the first thing came to their mind? Chinese, right? I'm not Chinese. I'm nowhere close to, you know, well, actually Vietnam pretty close to China, but, but I'm nowhere close to Chinese, you know what I mean? But that is their perception, right? Hey, you're, you're, you're Asian looking, you know, you got slanty eyes, you must be Chinese. So it takes time and effort, uh, but at least they... One, they open it up to like talk to me to even call me Chinese, right? And then it take me time and effort not to get upset, but to educate them like, hey guys, I'm not Chinese, I'm Vietnamese, here's the difference, right? And sometimes they may be hot-headed by saying, oh, are you slant eyes or you know, alike? You look alike to me. I'm like, maybe, maybe we do look alike, but here's all the difference, right? So there are gonna be some patient that go on both sides, you know what I mean? If, if it's almost like a give and take, you know, if you don't give a little to take a little, then that's when uh, we are going to start, you know, with the misunderstanding. And then from there, it just uh, getting bigger and bigger and that friction just getting more and more over time. And now you have what we have, I would say, you know, so if that's the case, let's just take a step back you know, let open up a little bit more to, hey, we might, we don't have to like them, but at least, you know, willing to listen, willing to learn. Once we have listened and learned, now we can make a judgment, you know, and at that point, 
you know, at least it's, it's not okay, but it's understandable. Hey, I gave you a shot and you proved me wrong. You know what I mean? But if you're kind of give them a chance and open them up, and then now you're kind of like, huh, you're, you're not that much different than I am, then now we kind of walk in the right direction, I think. Now y'all see why I'm able to do the amazing stuff I do in Newark because I got people like Trong in my corner, man. I roll with the A-team. This is the kind of people, these are the conversations I get to have with uh, friends in my network and those that come on the platform. So Trong, I appreciate you uh, sharing this time with us. I know you've got a family, you got a wife and how many kids? Two. Two. Yeah. I had the privilege of being a groomsman, by the way. So that was very interesting. It was like the longest wedding ever. <laughs> uh... Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think you carried the pig, right? Yeah, I carried. The, I literally carried a roasted pig, <laughs> and I got in. I probably got in at like twelve o'clock midnight. Trong picked me up from the airport. I wake up in his room at like five o'clock. He's out decorating the car. We had to go to her wet. We had to go pay tribute to her family. Then they came to pay tribute to his family. Then we had the wedding. Then we had the reception. And then I was out like the next morning at like five. And I was like, this is the longest day <laughs> ever. But it was a great time. Trong, where can people find you at? So I'm not uh, big on social media, but the best way to get a hold of me really through my email. So wetrong2010 at gmail.com. Uh, you can easily get a hold of me there. Uh, yeah. That's the same email I had, you know, forever. So that, that's the best way as far as social media. I'm not really big on that. Uh, my wife, you know, H me on all the time, but I, I'm just not big on social media. I'm like, it's easier for me to like pick up a phone and, you know, call you and have a conversation via your know, texting or via your know, like whatever, making comments or whatever on whatever social yeah. media platform. Yeah, Trong doesn't got no tweets, man. He picks up the phone and calls. But if you want to get a hold of Trong, just reach out to me. And I'll uh, connect you all, too. So thanks again for being on the platform, Trong. For our listeners, be sure to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, feel free to forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. For our listeners and super fans tuning in all over the world, head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak, fill out your contact information, and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. You can order some dope coffee at www.realdope.coffee. We've got to start supporting our own businesses, y'all. It's black and better known and is the epitome of economic empowerment. Shout out to Mike Lloyd and his wife, Michelle, and the team down in Atlanta doing great work with dope coffee. My girlfriend has a company called Sincerely Bade. You can check out her website, www.sincerelybade.com to order some handmade pain relief wellness products. Again, I know the CDL personally, so I'll put in a good word for you. Feel free to message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network, rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our trees, black man.